You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam. Hey, guys. I'm here with David Rourke, producer of the show, because my co-host Adam Griffin is still away on sabbatical. We miss you, bro. On this episode, we're going to be digging deeper into the kingdom of God with some of our friends from the Village Church Institute who are also responsible for our other podcast, Knowing Faith. We're going to look specifically at the implications of the kingdom on the way we engage with culture. Hey, it's me and David. Hey, Dave. Hey, Adam. Uh, so we're exploring this idea of kingdom, uh, and and really, I think this is just a good place to set up uh, why. Why are we talking about kingdom now? I mean, I think one of the main reasons that I thought about this specific episode is just the fact that uh, right now, I don't know when this episode will actually release the date, but right now, the Village Church is in a sermon series on the kingdom of God called Citizens and Strangers. We are in, I think we're like in week three, going into week four right now. So this is just top of mind, I think, for most people on staff at the church, people who are members. And there's no way that Matt, as great of a communicator and preacher as he is, is going to be able to cover every aspect of the kingdom. So I thought, hey, let's spend a Culture Matters episode, you know, maybe digging into some things that he won't be able to cover. Maybe he will cover some of this. And then thinking specifically about like, Okay, how does this apply to to this show and the focus of this show, which is which is culture? So yeah, and I think um, one of the things that's sort of inescapable uh, about Christianity itself uh, is the idea that the kingdom and the gospel are sort of intertwined in a way um, that if you pull one apart from the other, they're not going to make much sense. And so I think it's just really relevant to talk about the kingdom um, because. Frankly, uh, you can't talk about Christianity uh, or or Christianity and how it how how it shapes culture without talking about the kingdom. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm I'm curious of your upbringing because here's the thing: I've been in church my whole life, and I don't know that I learned <laughs> or knew anything about the kingdom until maybe college when some of the uh, Sort of emerging church guys actually were were talking kingdom. If you remember, you know Rob Bell. Yep. Some of those guys were were onto these things, and so that was the first time. So my first, you know, introduction was probably not the best theological introduction, but that's where I first heard it. Like I was raised in church and never was taught about this concept really. Just a very personal view of the gospel, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Uh, that's absolutely true. For me as well. I, I'm sure like the word came up as we were reading scripture or whatever, but I don't think it had a great impact on exactly uh, on the teaching, right? Uh, or even the doctrine that we were that we were sort of soaked in, if you'll if you will. So yeah, I think um, I think what's it's it's a it's a trendy topic now in mm-hmm. a sense. I mean, yeah. you've got people for the past maybe five years or more, maybe a little more who have been writing on this topic and who've been sort of re-engaging with the idea of kingdom. Um, why do you think that is? Man, you know, I think the two things that come to mind is maybe just a bit of um, frustration out of evangelicals. Those of us like you and me who are talking about, you know, having that upbringing that didn't even mention this, but 
knowing and learning, starting to see how, okay, the gospel does apply to not just me and my personal salvation, but it seems like the Bible is dealing pretty regularly with these bigger social issues, way to love your neighbor, pushing back darkness, a more corporate idea of church, not an individualistic. Um, I feel like we, we all grew up in that and are a bit tired of it. And, you know, and I think a lot of us were disgruntled for a season because of that. Maybe I'm just sharing why I'm interested in this topic. But and for me, the idea of kingdom to learn, oh, OK, this is this thing that is not just mentioned, you know, when Jesus comes on the scene. But it's this concept and idea that the gospel is completely, you know, intersecting with and, and, you know, wrapped up in. And it's from Old Testament to New Testament. And it has an individual aspect to it, has a corporate aspect, has a cosmic aspect to it. So it's just, uh, it's very uh, refreshing. Um, I want to say, you know, for personal reasons for me, I think, just, you know, based on my upbringing. Yeah, I can't help but sort of, look, I'll make a pronouncement and, and I, you know, it's probably wrong, but in some sense, I think the project of individualism has failed, uh, or I think people feel like it has, if I could say that. And the answer from society seems to be, or from culture or whatever, seems to be more individualism, but it's still just failing. So what do I mean by that? Forever, I mean, even in Christian circles, uh, the idea is that we had this gospel that was sort of existential and sort of very individually focused. And so the idea was um, the gospel is about taking my negative emotions and making me feel better. Uh, That's at the worst. At the best, it's simply just a personal view of salvation, which is absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with sort of a therapeutic ideal of saying, I want to feel good. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's happened is I think what what I hope what people have started to see um, is that this idea that um, as you just sort of look inward and only focus on yourself, um, that you still come up in ashes, that the negative emotions are still there. And when society's answer is let's let's marginalize each other more, let's only see each other based on, you know, sort of uh, accidental identity. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm a you know, I'm, I'm a pastor and that's what I am. And that, you know, like if that's how we're identifying each other and then we make these really shallow connections based on shallow identities through social media and things like this, it's like the more individualized society becomes, the more isolated we become. And I can't help but think that the rise of kingdom, uh, this kingdom language and the kingdom idea has a lot to do with the fact, um, it's a corrective, if I could say that. Uh, yeah. Not Hear me say, I don't think the idea of kingdom is a corrective. The idea's been there all along, but mm-hmm. I think the reason we're seeing more of it— Yeah, the recovery The of recovery it. of it has to do with with this idea that maybe this project of individualization has, yeah. and you has can, failed. You can trace that back to the Enlightenment, Absolutely. modernity, the idea that, you know, like we used to not think in the space of individualism. It was, you know, spirituality, religion was very corporate— um, very mystical, you know, just not the way that we think about it today. And then you have enlightenment thinking that, you know, all the emphasis is on the individual. You can figure things out through reason, through logic, through the way you feel. And I think that in the last whatever, you know, few dozen years, that's infiltrated the church. And what we're seeing is that you were already saying this, this that moralistic therapeutic deism, yeah. which has just been individualism seeping in, you know, in, in all the different areas. And then we're at a place now where it's kind of like, oh, that 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 has failed us. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like yeah. it, it's not working. It's failed us. 
And so Kingdom is like, oh, wow, we're really latching onto this because it's a recovery of that idea for sure. That actually brings us to a perfect place to start defining this idea of kingdom and what we mean by it. What would you say is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ in the here and now as the people of God are anticipating what is to come. The kingdom of God is the people of God, the church, and the um, future glory that we will one day be uh, with God. I view the kingdom of God as both something that is coming and something that has come, meaning uh, Jesus Christ is the ultimate king of the universe, and he uh, is reigning and will one day um, be with us, be with his people, and reign among us forever. How would you define the kingdom of God? We define the kingdom of God as a presence of God with his people. The kingdom of God is uh, the coming kingdom that is here, but not yet. And it's something more beautiful than we can imagine. The kingdom of God is very present and very anticipated. It's always that thing that I'm trying to get to. I'm always trying to, to be inside of, because once I am, then it's not that I've arrived, but at least I know I'm on point. The kingdom of God is God's ever-expanding, ever-increasing rule and reign on the earth. I'm here with JT, Jen, and Kyle from Knowing Faith, and we are here today to talk about the kingdom of God. I think one of the first things that I would like to hear about is uh, just what is the kingdom, or what is it and what is it not? Uh, for me, I feel like sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of God, it sort of lends itself to abstractions most of the time, um, or it lends itself to sort of these concrete examples like, oh, kingdom, like historical idea of a kingdom, a, sort of a geopolitical thing. Um, so I'd like to hear you guys. What Kyle, I know you have a definition for us. I'd love to hear uh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, I think, and listen, <clears throat> New Testament scholars are tripping over themselves <laughs> to define the kingdom of God. And so I, I certainly wouldn't want the listener to hear my kingdom and go, okay, everybody's agreed on that definition of the kingdom. This is one that we use in the training program when we start exploring this, particularly when we get to the New Testament. But I genu generally define the kingdom of God as the rule and reign of God aimed at the restoration and redemption of all things inaugurated explicitly in Christ coming to dwell with his people. And then there's some other things that we could talk about from there. But really, those ideas of rule and reign, I mean, obviously, that's kind of captured when we say the word kingdom. When we hear the word kingdom, we think about rule and reign. Bruce Waltke is helpful in that he distinguishes between a universal and a particular reign, mm -hmm. the kind of a cosmic rule and reign, and then a rule and reign kind of at the level of the human, so to speak. And I think that's really helpful. But I think rule and reign of God aimed at a goal— restoration and redemption of all things is a helpful place to start. Why do, why do you why do you think Bruce makes that distinction, if I may call you Bruce, Bruce? Uh, why do you think he makes that distinction? <laughs> you, 
Uh, you can call me Bruce as much as you want. <laughs> I'm glad. To, uh, no, no, no. I was just, I'm speaking to Bruce. Okay. Well, yeah. I will answer as Bruce. Okay, great. If that's helpful for you. It's super stay, helpful. To stay in character. No, uh, Dr. Waltke uh, distinguishes. A little between, formal. But... Uh, well, I don't know him personally. We, we haven't like shared Yet. chicken wings together. Um, that's, my, that's my level of relationship. If we've eaten wings together, we're blood we're brothers. All in. Yeah. <laughs> Because you've seen me at my worst at that point, right? Because <laughs> you never eat chicken wings as a first date option. But anyways, Shaving we are well, we are we are out there. But Dr. Waltke distinguishes between universal and particular because of the confusion around when the kingdom starts. Yep. So some people would say, well, it doesn't look like kingdom language really gets explicit use until the New Testament. And Waltke says, well, that's it's not as if when Jesus comes, now God is ruling the world. Right. He was ruling the world the whole time. And so that rule is probably best understood as universal rule. That's one reason why he talks about it that way. The yep. second reason is that the Bible seems to tease out two different ways of God ruling in the world. One, through his cosmic rule over all things. This is Colossians 1. In him all things hold together. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's that kind of cosmic angle on the rule. But there's also a particular personal level of the rule that God has chosen to exercise much of his rule through humanity, through his people, a kingdom of priests, a royal dynasty. So universal in particular, really cosmic lordship over all things, big 30,000 foot view, and then particular through his chosen people, Adam and Eve in the garden. And then when they fail, the establishment of the nation of Israel and so on. Let me ask this question, because I think this might be helpful. So what I like about this definition is not only does it discuss sort of the what, so you have this rule and reign, you have sort of this particular slash universal view, but then it also talks about what the kingdom is aimed at, right? Mm -hmm. Like what the purpose is, and then when it started or who is ruling, right? So you've got rule and reign, you've got restoration, and then you've got the inauguration of which starts with Christ, right, uh, coming. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I guess the, the question I would have is, let's talk a little bit more about the aim of the kingdom. What is the kingdom pointed at? You guys can sort of jump in there. Man, this is a really huge question also, and I think it's maybe part of answering this question before we get to answering it is thinking about what would the what would the hearers of the message of Jesus have thought when they hear Jesus come on the scene and saying things like, or, or John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or uh, Matthew 5 says that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. I think it's really important for us to consider what what would somebody who is just walking along the Galilean countryside and hear this kind of peasant itinerant preacher saying the kingdom of God is at hand, what would they have heard? And for them, it's really closely tied with the hopes of Israel, that, that God is doing something very particular through history, through the people of Israel, that they there's going to be a king, the seed of David, the son of Abraham, who's going to come and reign and rule over all the nations and ultimately restore all things on behalf of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they would have been hearing some very serious political overtones that, that God is coming to overthrow the rulers and powers of this world and establish his kingdom through the people of Israel. That's really interesting because in some sense, uh, well, in a real sense, that's not what they saw. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, and I think this is where it can get in some, I wonder if sometimes people or, um, when we start thinking about that idea, cause mm -hmm. that's what it seems like the new Testament at times is building up to, or the old Testament, excuse me, is building up to. And then you have this sort of, uh, this, this different thing happening. Uh, is that simply a way that Christians sort of dodge, uh, the promises of the old Testament? In other words, 
Or are we reading the Old Testament wrongly when we say, oh, it's a geopolitical event? Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so I, th- I, I love looking at uh, the Gospel of Matthew, thinking about this in particular. So it seems like Jesus, like the, his primary message through the first 13 chapters, well, even more, is the kingdom of God is at hand. The king, yep. He's He is uh, anointed as king in his baptism, anointed as king through the anointing of oil. And I think it's Matthew chapter 21. He's uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And something happens in Matthew chapter 13 where he asks his disciples who should know what he is. They, they should know that he's the king. And they say, who do people say that I am? And they give a few answers. And ultimately they say, well, who do you say that I am? Mm. And Peter gives an answer. He says, you're, you're the king. Yep. You're the one who's coming to, to, to bring all these hopes to fruition, this kind of geopolitical hope that we have of overthrowing Rome, that, you're, that God's kingdom through Israel would be established forever. And then Jesus says something interesting to him. You're, you're right, and I must go suffer and die. Yep. And so that's where we see this upside-down kingdom really twist in, in the New Testament, where all of what they thought their hopes were going to be were actually overturned by he's not, he's not going to reign as king. He's actually going to die a state death mm-hmm. as a as a as a criminal against yeah. the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but something to think about is that's how God then rules as king. Yeah. Right? He's enthroned in the cross as this reigning and ruling king who actually what, what was meant to be his greatest defeat becomes his ultimate victory and the kingdom of God is established at the cross. Yeah, and the royal imagery, all of the kingly imagery amplifies to the crucifixion. Like it gets stronger and stronger. I mean, by the time that you get the son of God, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. He's been robed in purple, crowned with a crown of thorns, and pronounced king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. That all happens in the moments leading up to and at the point of his crucifixion. That's right. So the gospel writers are at pains to point out that whatever, if you had this idea of kingdom where the Savior was coming and his his presentation of power, of God's power, would look like the way you thought power should look like, well, then you were wrong. You got it backwards. And that's still the that's still most people's problem with dealing with discussions of kingdom and gospel is power, time, and space are the things that are most they're they're the most difficult to have redefined for you. And the Bible's constantly redefining power, time, and space. But, I'd, a, I'd add another thing yeah. that redefines wealth. Yes, right. Oh, I mean, when we right, yeah. when we think about kings and kingdoms, people picture the crown, the yep. miniseries. You know, they're, they're like, "Oh, I'm into that. I want to yep. be a part of that." And Jesus is at great pains to redefine wealth yeah. throughout the. And people always think he's dogging on rich people, but really, he's he's trying to broaden our understanding of wealth to, and he's trying to, in calling us into his kingdom. He's asking us to rule as stewards versus as sovereigns, and mm-hmm. and, and the kingdom is a matter for the Christian of submission, right? It's about submission and it's about community that you're not, salvation may be about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but Jesus does not, the first words he speaks about the kingdom are not, um, I want to invite you into a personal relationship with me. It's repent for the kingdom is at hand. Mm. Uh, So their, their first understanding of salvation is that it's communal in some sense. And so all of these things are things that modern day, um, Believers or those who have any fascination with what it means to be a Christian are having to still war against is individuality, elevation of um, typical forms of wealth, elevation of typical forms of power and influence. All of those things are pulling on us every bit as as strongly as they were pulling on first century Jews and, and Gentiles who were roughly associated with what was going on. I want to come back to your question real quick, Adam, and make a correction. It's Matthew 16, not 13. Okay, a mistake. Great. But you also ask asking the question, how are they relating to this their understanding of the Old Testament? Yeah. 
mm-hmm. Jesus is preaching related to the Old Testament. I think Paul is a helpful answer here. The very, like I guess it's Luke writing, but he's he's commenting on the, the last days, of, at least at least the last known days of Paul's ministry, and we see that Paul is in Rome, and this is what Luke has to say about Paul's uh, last few uh, years of ministering. It says, uh, when they had appointed a day for him, this is Acts chapter 28, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So it seems like, like Paul is saying, if you haven't read uh, Jesus as Jesus's kingship through the law and the prophets, you've actually misunderstood mm-hmm. the Old Testament. And so a reading of the Old Testament that misses Jesus Christ as being the king over the kingdom of God is out of step, not only with Jesus's proclamation of the gospel and John the Baptist, but also Paul's. Yeah. I, there's this question I have for you. guys. It sounds sort of like what we're saying is that the idea of kingdom and the gospel are, are sort of inseparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I have two questions about this. And it also sort of sounds like what we're saying is if you want to see a picture of what it means um, for God to rule and reign, look no further than the cross mm-hmm. in a sense that like the culmination of what it means isn't that such an upside down picture? Jen, you were pointing to the crown, uh, you know, and the, the, this, uh, you know, show on Netflix. And, and when we think, we sort of think of this royal majesty in a certain way, but the idea of Jesus reigning is hanging on a cross, mm-hmm. uh, condemned to die as a criminal and his only followers being sort of a ragtag group of, you know, peasants from, from nowhere, you know? Uh, I, I just think there's a, there's a shock to that. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I, there's a lot of questions I have. So am I right in saying that one, is that the right picture? Uh, two, um, why, if the kingdom and the gospel are sort of inseparable, why does it feel a bit like we've lost this kingdom language or, and I, I might be assuming something there, but I would, maybe we haven't. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, uh, that to say that God ruling and reigning from a cross, it ne- it has to be a part of the picture. Great, mm-hmm. not it's the only thing in the picture. So we want to treat the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then also heavenly session or what Jesus is currently doing right now, as that's the picture. That's and the with, full. And the problem is that it ends up getting divided against itself. Yeah. So social uh, people that want to emphasize social justice and mercy ministry um, to the exclusion of the need for forgiveness of sins will look at the ministry of Jesus and go, look, that's what he was doing. And they'll divide his ministry against the substitutionary death of Christ and the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't we don't want to divide it against itself. But you're absolutely right. Oftentimes what's forgotten and what's missed is that God is not being defeated at the cross. That's right. Mm-hmm. He is victorious yeah, at the cross. Right. Paul says disarming the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Jesus cries out a battle cry of victory and it is finished at the cross. And so, yeah, I would say it has to be a part of the picture, not the whole thing. Or Philippians chapter two, he's found in human form, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. Yep. Therefore, God highly exalted him. So since he was exalted and lifted in the air at the cross, he's also the one who's exalted and lifted in the air in the ascent, resurrection and ascension. Yeah. And, and traditional, and I know uh, this is a good point to bring this up and JT, you can 
help here. Mm-hmm. So uh, traditionally, Reformed theologians would, start, would talk about the cross as the state of humiliation yeah. and the resurrection being the state of exaltation. Mm-hmm. And we actually have been really influenced uh, by a guy named Jeremy Treat. And we've I, I feel like we say his name on every podcast. But he's been so helpful. Um, and his book, The Crucified King. Um, and uh, he talks about how it'd be better to think of it that the cross is the state of exaltation through humiliation. Yeah, right? glor- glorification right. comes through humiliation. Yes. And that's that actually becomes immensely practical. That as we think about suffering in our own lives or cruciform lives, trying to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, the pattern of the cross, that we understand that there isn't just glory after suffering, but there's some sense that God is glorified in the midst and through our suffering mm-hmm. insofar as we see this this connection between uh, suffering and ultimate glorification or exaltation. Well, if you think about the report in the New Testament of put to death, therefore, everything mm. that is immoral, um, you know, the, the process of sanctification is a process of dying, right? And I was thinking as you guys were talking about Bonhoeffer's probably his most famous quote that it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And what he's really saying is, or another way of saying that, according to what we're talking about here is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and reign mm-hmm. with him. And how? Through death to self. That's the, that's the that's entry really point. I mean, that's not, yeah. as you're saying, there's more to it than that. But that's, that's definitely part of that trajectory of reigning and ruling is, is dying, being, being um, uh, united with him in, in, in his suffering. And that language is in the New Testament too, right? right. If you want to follow me, carry up your cross. So that's this right. cross becomes almost a passport of kingdom citizenship, that our lives mm-hmm. must be shaped and formed in kind of this cross-shaped way to show that we are actually citizens of an entirely different kingdom, an upside-down kingdom that's at work to set this world upside down. Oh, and even see- even like the language of reigning, let sin no longer <clears throat> reign in your members, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a sense in which we're trading one rule for another, a very real sense yeah. in which you're trading. We're never not ruled, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a question of by what or by whom we are, we're ruled. Yeah. Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? You know what I'm talking about, Hawkins. I do know what you're talking Boom. about. There we Big go. Bob Dylan fan. Bo- <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I would commend his music to you. Hey, uh, <laughs> for your edification. For your edification. Hey, but honestly, even as you guys talk about treat, um, that book is really powerful, The mm-hmm. Crucified King. Mm-hmm. So if that's something, if you're looking for something to pick up, uh, even us culture matters weirdos have read that book, and it's really great. Yeah, so. and I think he's a guest on another podcast out of the Village Church coming mm. up here. Oh, we yeah. have another podcast. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's called Growing. <laughs> <laughs> Growing space. <laughs> growing space. <laughs> growing pains. <laughs> growing pains. Um, yeah, so uh, go back to the other question, though. Am I wrong in saying that it seems like some of the kingdom language has fell away for a while or has fallen away? Yeah, yeah there's no doubt. It's certainly making a resurgence. Absolutely. But it's making a resurgence because it was largely absent from, okay. lo- from large portions of evangelicalism, partially because what Kyle just brought up, there's kind of maybe portions of, of, uh, of mainline Protestantism that were emphasizing kingdom, portions of kind of maybe, I don't want to say fundamentalism, but just conservative evangelical uh, Protestant Christianity that was emphasizing kind of more uh, justification, sanctification, and we'd forgotten how these two were, were, I mean, intertwined. You just cannot have one without the other. I think there's another force at play here. I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, as we move into a, a post-Christian culture, a secularism kind of takes hold, we're going to come face-to-face more and more with the limitations of the idea of a personal 
faith. <laughs> so good. That individualism within Christianity in particular is no longer going to have the foothold that it has perhaps in the past. And without diminishing the beauty of knowing that I have a personal connection to the God of the universe, we're going to have to rely more on this historic idea, this this uh, all-important idea that you're not alone. Like you'll spend six days of the week potentially wondering if anybody else feels the way that you do and mm-hmm. knows the things that you do and has the same view on life that you do. And when you gather with the saints um, for the gathering on the weekend, you are there to be reminded that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that we will need to hold on to with, in, with increasing um, strength. It sounds like you're saying by implication. So in some sense, when you lose the, when the gospel message loses the kingdom message, I guess you could say you lose the gospel, but maybe another way to say it is it becomes more individualistic, maybe. I think that's fair. Uh, And and as you, Jen, you were sort of mentioning like um, this idea that as you explore the idea of kingdom, uh, it's going to change the way you, you steward things. It's going to change right. the way. And so this this question, I guess, the, the question that leads to is what does the kingdom have to do with wider culture? I mean, I guess in one sense, what we could say is that it is uh, it has nothing to do with culture and that if what we mean by culture, and this would, this would matter significantly if we're going to say it has something to do with culture, is that our, our, the way that the world views itself or the way that we view the world or the way that many people view the world, the kingdom should be appropriated to that, then no. It's countercultural in that sense. And so it is a story that is running against in friction with the, fa- the false stories or what we call what we might call false narratives mm-hmm. of our day and age. Now, what we I think we find oftentimes is that our parts of the gospel story, the kingdom story, are being appropriated without anyone knowing. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. We're in an age right now where more people are crying out for social justice and for fairness and for righteousness. I mean, the, the Me Too movement is, if nothing else, an opportunity to go, this is wrong. This yeah. is a systemic, systematic wrong. But we really have a hard time making those decisions on any cultural basis given to us. So on what basis are we making those decisions? Well, because there is a true kingdom. Mm -hmm. There is a kingdom where there is a right way to treat women. That kingdom exists. Mm -hmm. And we are assessing this world, whether we know it or not, on the basis of the values of that kingdom. And so when we enter in, I guess, what does the kingdom have to do with culture? Well, it's renewing it. It's revitalizing it. It's uh, we're bringing the gospel of the kingdom to bear on every nook and cranny of our existence, and it is going to be in friction with the dominant stories of our world. It seems like what you're saying is that the kingdom of God um, isn't necessarily its own culture, but has an influence on culture. Is that what you would say? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the kingdom of God should be influencing culture. It is the rule and reign of God. We want as Christians. We want all things to be brought under the rule and reign of God because we think then and only then will they experience the true flourishing and thriving that God's intended for all of creation. But I would say that the kingdom does produce some unique cultural things. So if we're going to say that part of culture are the artifacts that emerge from a group of people, well, there's no doubt that the hymnody of the church is a unique contribution that the kingdom of God has brought in the life of God's people. 
right? I mean, that that's a huge contribution. I would say that much of the art that we would find throughout the medieval period would be artifacts that were forged in the unique contribution of the church. And so does the kingdom play a, a role in producing unique culture? Yeah. God's kingdom people are created to create, and they walk in that creative ability, and they create beautiful things that are a product of their kingdom imagination. I, I do think, though, I'd love to hear you talk, anybody talk about this. There has to be some kind of, t- we have to temper this a little bit, and I don't think the Bible ever calls us to bring the kingdom or to build the kingdom or to establish the kingdom. The Bible is clear that Christians don't do that or as image bearers, we, don't do we live in it and through it and we're, we're kingdom citizens. But ultimately, the, the main thing that we're supposed to do is, as Jesus teaches us to pray, to ask God to bring his kingdom. Yeah, we, we, we do ask the Lord to bring the kingdom. But you would agree, though, that God's called us to cultivate undoubtedly, and subdue. Undoubtedly. To, uh, I just think that, that our expectations of what that should look like should be tempered in the yeah, reality. Like we, we're, we're trying to live out this reality and already not yet. We should live as kingdom citizens now as we will forever in the eschaton as if as if the kingdom was already here because in some sense it is. And the yeah. reality of the spirit being among us and enlivening us to life in Jesus Christ. However, I don't. I, I just want to make sure that we're tempering expectations. Saying there's no way that I can bring the kingdom. Only no. Jesus Christ yeah, brings the kingdom. It's his kingdom to bring. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. I like this idea, the reality of citizenship in this kingdom. Uh, what does it look like to live in and live out the kingdom now? Just us. I, I really feel like this is one of the places where as we recapture a vision for the importance of kingdom language and vision within the church, it is going to push really hard on the way we have talked about authority and submission in particular, because we love to talk about authority and we sometimes cordon off submission to only certain categories of people or certain situations. And yet, based on what we're talking about here with regard to the way that Christ rules and reigns, submission is going to need to be understood as the means by which we reign and rule. Mm. And so it doesn't mean that authority becomes something that we um, no longer talk about in terms of like certain people in the church having authority or, uh, you know, authority structures, but it means that we understand what it means to exercise authority as a laying down rather than a taking up perhaps. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be, it's interesting. Like there are, there are, as we've been talking about, there are cultural implications for this, but there are massive subcultural implications Mm -hmm. for this within the church. And I'm, I'm almost more interested in those. Um, maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. But I, I think about how we have a tendency as believers to perceive ourselves as rulers of our own little kingdoms, mm-hmm. which is certainly a human thing. But within the church, I think it's particularly destructive. And and when we begin to regard ourselves not as rulers of our own little kingdoms that we're sovereign over and instead as stewards of areas of God's kingdom that have been entrusted to us, then we're going to just respond completely differently. And whether that is, you know, as a, as a stay at home mom who has this little kingdom with little kingdom participants in it, she's going to, she's going to uh, carry out her responsibilities there differently. If she views herself um, servant minded versus sovereign minded. So Mm -hmm. she's going to heed the words of Christ when he says, if you've done these things, clothing the the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, those are very motherly um, things that, that most young moms can identify with if, if she views those as though she's doing them for Christ himself instead of as, you know, well, that's getting in the way of me um, being Lord of all I survey, then that's going to change the way she's a mom. And same thing with being in the workplace or anywhere that we're given influence. It's just going to change the way that we interact with our, our environments. I think citizenship language can also help us just in, in kind of the realm of self-identity and understanding of our primary. So like you think of like terms of like allegiance, the, the kind of things that we give our allegiance to. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, perhaps poorer Christians were giving allegiance to uh, to family or to a country or to a job or to political party or to some kind of ideal and vision of good life of the good life and human flourishing in the world and, and or so how th- things used to be that's yeah, a big yes. one yeah yeah like kind of maybe even nostalgia of, mm-hmm. of if, if, if only we get back to or perhaps it's a kind of romanticism or consumerism some of these false stories that we tend to live in the kingdom of God is painting a very different vision of human flourishing and what it looks like to contribute as a citizen in this world and so it's placing all of these other uh, it's either crucifying kill and crushing all these other self-identities or it's reframing them and giving them new purpose and new meaning. So being a dad before you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven doesn't change once you enter the citizen uh, or become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but it radically changes it. Mm -hmm. And some of these other self-identities that actually, I think, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven crushes and and kills. And so we're no longer those who are citizens of Babel or citizens of the domain of darkness, but we've been, the Bible says, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, which changes self-awareness, changes identity. It changes the way we interact with in every single relationship we have, whether that's interpersonal relationships or relationships with systems uh, that are at play in our world. Tell me how this might look. And I know you can't you can't just make this a formula. And Jen, I think you were getting at it. But one of the things I look at, you know, as you talk about, like, so talk about politics or being an American citizen and how it might change that. You know, they're easy to beat up on now. But, you know, like, why wasn't the moral majority, right, from the 80s? Like, why wasn't what they were doing kingdom, a kingdom ethic? Or was it? Could they argue that what they were doing was a kingdom ethic. I know this is super hot button, but I, sure. yeah, go I do. ahead, I, take on that subject, one of Kyle. you. It's <laughs> not me. No. Yeah, I honestly, I have no skin in the game either way. I'm just asking. Yeah. Sure. Well, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's such a convenient place to be. Uh, uh, we just throw a grenade on the table, and one of you will jump on it, yeah. step out of the room, and I will. I it's, mean, so I mean, I get to play host. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, you've been a gracious host so far. Yeah. Um, I forgot to take. No, I mean, off. I think. Uh, so when we look at something like the moral majority or uh, what we might call religious fundamentalism, yeah. they certainly would probably have a self-identity of thinking, oh, yes, we are doing this to bring the rule and reign of God to bear on all issues. That's like, what I was trying like to ask. Yeah. The, re- the reason we hold up these signs at gay weddings is because we're trying to bring everything under the rule and reign of God. But the problem is, is that it no <laughs> longer looks like the ministry of Jesus in doing so. Yeah. Right. So, so it's like, well, if the rule and reign of God is supposed to live out. Well, do we maybe have an example of how that should be lived out? Oh, wait, we do. God came and he actually demonstrated in the flesh what it looked like to live in the way that he's created us to live and to live counterculturally. There's no doubt that Jesus is not afraid to call a spade a spade, but he does so in ways that are counterintuitive, yep. that are hospitable, that are generous, that are kind. And the, the power dynamic that seems to be at work in many political movements that co-opt religious language, and particularly Christian kingdom language, which we've seen even over the last... Exactly. Three years. I mean, maybe, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, even as we've seen these things play out, I mean, the reality is, is that that language is co-opted to enforce a power dynamic that is counterintuitive to the very story it's stealing. So it's like, let, we're going to steal the bits and pieces of the story. So it kind of comes to you speaking in a language that has like some of the words you're familiar with. It's almost like somebody who 
like knows of the parody of a song. Mm-hmm. Like they don't know the song. They know the parody of the song. It's like somebody coming to you and be like, have you heard Weird Al Yankovic's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a foil or you know, whatever. Uh, and you're like, that's not the song. Yeah. And it's like, but it, well, it kind of sounds like the song. It's like, yeah, but if you'd heard the song, you'd know it wasn't. And to, to punch on a punching bag that Jen would be happy to take the to lead in. So I'm going to, segue to you is that we're able to do that people are able to do that because people do not know the story mm-hmm. yeah they don't know the bible mm-hmm. and so somebody comes to them parroting a little bit of language and we go well i mean i guess they're they're on the team right. they're, they're telling the true account of the story when in reality is no they're miming it they're yeah. mimicking mm-hmm. it they're parroting it because they want power and yeah. people have done this. It's not like this it's is the first generation. New. Well, this is, this is, I mean, yeah, Jen, I want you to take mm-hmm. This is happening in the Bible also. Oh, yes. Right, right. I mean, and, and all of the uh, misunderstanding or just lack of focus that we've had on on the kingdom as, as a theme is directly related to lack of knowledge of our sacred text, firsthand knowledge of our sacred text. We are constantly taking someone else's word for it. So whoever's driving the current agenda has the loudest voice and we don't, we're not equipped to think critically about what we're hearing. Because one of the things that's been interesting as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew this semester, I've had several women say to me, I was so um, scared to study the Old Testament because it felt so inaccessible because we did Genesis the year before. And, and then I thought it'll be a relief to get into Matthew. That's how they were all feeling, like get me back to some familiar territory. But what they found when they came back to Matthew after studying Genesis was that Matthew felt like a foreign land to them because they were now able to see how much of Matthew was pulling on an Old Testament knowledge. And they understood just how much they had been missing all mm-hmm. these years, reading, uh, reading the gospel and taking it sort of just at a face value detached from the Old Testament. And so I do think this whole thing is is, well, I mean, no one is shocked to hear me say this, is directly related to <clears throat> having lost a vision for um, knowing our text, for for being present in our own sacred text so that any teaching that we hear is something we're able to weigh. I think one of the most dangerous things, just to kind of keep keep hitting this point uh, for contemporary Christianity, uh, biblical kind of kingdom citizenship is kind of this parroting American civil religion Yeah, uh, that culturally, I think we would say, uh, it, I, I, maybe I don't know, I'd love, I'd love to talk about this. It's either having a last gasp, like one last huge gasp right now, mm-hmm. uh, or it's kind of having a revitalization. Um because for years, for the last 10, 15 years or so, with the rise of secularism and the rise of kind of all these other political ideologies, there was many people who were saying, well, the, the this mushy middle is dying out. You know, there's nobody who's really gaining cultural capital by being a part of Christianity anymore, or at least cultural Christianity. It seems like actually now, no, you're gaining capital again by being yeah. a part of this American civil religion at yep. least over these last few years. Well, I think we're always kind of um, vacillating between these two poles. One is where we're obsessed with the enemy out there. And the other is when we're obsessed with the enemy inside of us Mm. or, you know, which is I'm not making a spiritual statement about demons or Satan or anything like that. But I'm saying when we we're either uh, more or less aware of our own sin issues or the sin issues of others, the sermon is either always only for me or it's always for someone else. Right. And and what I think the moral majority believed was that the sermon was predominantly for someone else. And so we became guilty of and I'll say we but, you know, became guilty of that Pharisaism of cleaning the outside of the cup. And um, that's just not going to stand over the long haul. Yeah, I think what's so important about this whole conversation is I think so many people um, feel sort of 
the word that's been out there uh, is orphaned a little mm-hmm. bit, yeah. I think, by evangelicalism, whatever term. I know I'm putting terms in that that are hot button terms right now, but just sort of feel like, wait a minute, that that doesn't line up with mm-hmm. what Kyle kind of or um, one of you guys said. I'm sorry, I don't remember, but it doesn't line up sort of with the way I'm seeing politics done is not lining up with the way I saw Jesus do mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. The way that we are sort of partnering with, um, you know, demagogues and people who sort of seem just to have nothing to do uh, with Christianity that now they're sort of parenting, parroting this language. It just feels so foreign and you start to feel orphaned. I've brought up the example a couple times of the Alabama Senate race recently where the guy's accused of the, the uh, of being, you know, of a, several assaults and all these kind of things. And just the willingness to sort of to, to play in that space, um, you know, and he was – he was basically speaking in churches and and uh, you know ta- speaking from pulpits and it just sort of all looked very fake and inauthentic and it was hard to know what to do with that. I think it's a healthy it's a healthy turn of events ultimately for believers. I think that just as for many years we were expected to be straight ticket voters in the ballot um, box, we within the church tended to be straight ticket voters along the lines of particular theologians or predominant voices. And so as politics has just descended into chaos, uh, people have seen some parallels, I think, in, the, in their relationship to their faith. I, I've ta- I feel like I've had this conversation a lot with people who are, they're not just reevaluating their political stance. Now they're saying, well, this was so closely tied to so many things that I hold in a faith context that I'm having to reevaluate these things too. And and the- it feels like theological homelessness, mm-hmm. but yes. I would I would argue that it's actually the beginning of a theological homecoming in which you are now going to own at a personal level what you believe and it will drive us I pray it will drive us toward biblical literacy and doctrinal literacy that we would say um, whether I accept or reject this I'm going to do so on the basis of an informed opinion. Yeah and praise God the kingdom is not and has never been confined to what's happening in this country. Absolutely. Kingdom Kingdom has been exploding from the ancient Near East from the very beginning and is just exploding across the global south and the global east. And so what may look like a last gasp over here Mm -hmm. for American civil religion is a first breath uh, for uh, the gospel movement in East Asia, in South Asia, in South America. And so it's an incredible thing. And so the king is reigning and ruling and he's coming back and every false claim to that throne will be judged rightly at that time. Every single one of them. His kingdom doesn't shrink. I mean, this is, you know, the kingdom parables hit me, I think, extra Mm. deeply this time on the trip through Matthew. His kingdom does not shrink. And even if you're in the the whole point of those parables is you're going to look at it from the outside and you're going to think, well, that's not going well. Mm -hmm. And so he tells many stories to reassure you that, in fact, there is a vast multiplicative thing that will happen because the sovereign God has decreed that it's so. So we can rest in that and then we can also labor in that in right ways. Uh, But we don't have to. The sky is not falling is what I would just like everyone to. The sky is not falling. There are people with a vested interest in making sure that you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is uh, out of place for the for the children of the living God to run around as though the sky is falling. And the, again, the Bible provides categories for things like this. You have Peter writing to a group of people who are living in their homeland. Right. And what does he call them? 
elect exiles. Aliens and strangers. Right? So we're, we do feel as citizens of the kingdom, it's appropriate for us to feel a little bit of this homelessness or this longing for, for a better home to come mm-hmm. for us ultimately, which is wrapped up in this definition that God's rule and reign would eventually come in all of its power, glory, and full fruition on this earth. Man, that's, I think that's a really great note to end on the idea that, um, being citizens of a kingdom of this kingdom means we are aliens even in in this land. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that means work, that means family, that means everywhere. And so we're going to feel a sense of longing in each of those spheres. And just to know that God's going to continue to shape us and continue to drive us, uh, just to man, to, to look more and more like his son. If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty is as close as breathing and is crying out to be both within ourselves and within the world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what we all of us hunger for above all other things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we're starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it when at some moment of crisis, a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home, and whether we realize it or not, I think we are all of us homesick for it. Okay, Adam, coming out of that conversation with Jen, Kyle, JT, um, what were some of the the highlights for you, um, takeaways, maybe even the things that you guys didn't get to that you wish you could have? Yeah, I just think, I actually just think the theology behind the kingdom um, and, and its connection to the gospel uh, is really refreshing. I also think um, this idea that we are more uh, than just... I don't know, saved individuals who are now left to our own devices, but we're actually citizens of this, of this other thing, this other kingdom. Yeah. Um, it gives so much purpose and meaning to what we're doing here, right? Uh, what we human beings who, who are believers are doing here on earth. I do think we talked a lot about politics there. Um, and just, just want to highlight again that, um, that's not the only thing that kingdom impacts, uh, that's the idea of kingdom impacts, but work and our families and everything else. I think what we're really saying is before we're anything, we're united with Christ. Before we're anything, what shapes us is this idea that we are ambassadors of the kingdom. We are citizens of this kingdom. Um, and so every aspect of our life is going to conform uh, to, to that idea, right? Yeah. Or be shaped or be transformed by that idea. Yeah. And I think that there would be probably a little bit of nuance and disagreement around the board on this topic, but I would even go so far as to say that I, I do think that as we live out the kingdom or we live as kingdom citizens in this world, that there is some mysterious thing that happens there. Obviously this is God's story. God is sovereign. Jesus is the King, you know, like he is in control of this thing and he the story will play out how he wants it to play out. However, we've been given this, you know, this mission, yep. this task to to live as kingdom citizens and there's something eternal, something significant in that. And so maybe we wouldn't say that we're we're physically, you know, ushering in the kingdom or bringing in the kingdom by our own, you know, will and might, but 
there is something significant there that's that's really important, I think, to grasp in this whole conversation. And we could have, I mean, you could have a whole nother podcast yeah. about like what that looks like in every sphere of life, whether like you said, the work, yeah. family, politics, education, entertainment, you know, all those all yeah. those sorts of things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, just just thinking about this idea that uh, to be a citizen in the kingdom, you're dying to yourself. What's that mean? You're coming. I mean, it means a lot. But one of the things it means is it's coming to the edge of your own limitations. God is shaping you, and as He shapes you, He's calling you into certain good works that He's laid before you from the found before the foundations of the world. And certainly, that work is part of shaping the kingdom, right? Or, or shaping might be the wrong word, but doing kingdom work or being a picture of that kingdom, being right? a picture of the kingdom. Exactly. Exactly. Which goes back to even, and you guys didn't even talk about this, but it goes back to that original, you know, the cultural mandate and the idea of the Imago Dei. Yeah. Like we are acting as ambassadors right. of the king. Yep. So it, it just, it's a continuation of that, right? Like it, like, just like you guys were saying, you know, this, this didn't just happen in the, the New Testament, but this is from the very beginning of That's the right. Bible. And so there is something significant about like, you know, in every, everywhere we go, every sphere that we're in, all of our areas of influence, we have the ability to be ambassadors of this kingdom and to represent that, give people a taste of that kingdom, to be a picture of the king. And, you know, that will be in a very fallen, limited way, but it's the task nevertheless, right? That's right. That's right. What about you? I mean, did you, was there anything you felt like we, we didn't get to cover? I mean, I think the only thing that I would, you know, maybe add that, this was mentioned, or maybe this is an implication of the conversation that you guys weren't able to, you know, discuss in depth. And, and that's fine because you can't talk about, you know, there are multiple books written, you know, not multiple books, tons of books and yeah. ideas and things like that around the kingdom. And so I think what's interesting as an American citizen, it, or, you know, maybe even being a citizen of any country, really, yeah. I, I'm just thinking about it, you know, for me as an American, that if if I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, which, you know, AKA Zion, AKA Jerusalem, yep. you know, and, and to some degree, a type of that, right? Yep. Then that would mean um, that America for me is a type of Babylon. You know, it, it's it's not Babylon. It, it's different than that. But it, it, that's the way, those are the lenses, lenses through which we should see America. And I know that there's a whole lot you could talk about, like our history and why that's been so confusing for Christians for so many years, but I think we have an opportunity now thinking about the kingdom, having this conversation. It's like, okay, if I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and now I'm living in Babylon, what does that mean? I feel like our interactions with the world, our interactions with politics, the way maybe being frustrated all the time that the, you know, that America's changing or it's not the way that we want it to be. If, but, but if you see it as Babylon, you're going to have different expectations, right? You're going to have different hopes and I think ultimately you're going to be more freed up to just as we see in the Old Testament when the Israelites are taken to you know to Babylon as you know as exiles to to live for the good of the city. So it doesn't change like living missionally. In fact, I think it pushes you even more to live mission, missionally. But it lets you, it reminds you that this is not your home, right? Like, and, and there's a good healthy distinction there that is easy to miss 
And there's so much to say about that. But that's that's one of the ideas I think that would be, you know, helpful for people to think about. I think what's so good about that, too, uh, and I think, you know, I, I know that some people might bristle when they first hear that. But really, it's less of a statement about America and more of a statement about our expectations about what America should be. Right. Right. It's less about saying, oh, of, about dogging on America somehow. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and don't hear me like at yeah. the end of the day, you know, like I'm patriotic. Yeah. I'm grateful yeah. to have grown up here. That's not what I'm saying. It's, that statement. No, you're not. You're basically just saying that, hey, this isn't that America is not the kingdom of God. It's, right. Those are different ideas. And mm-hmm. so this idea of a there is no place for a civil religion in in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, um, what What would you not, say? Not until the, you know, the, the second coming of yeah, Christ. Yeah. Right? And when Sorry. the kingdom. Yeah. yeah. I know, that's what you were saying. I'm yeah, just, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm adding on to that. What were we going to ask? I was just going to say, so what should, in, in some sense, then I go, what should our expectations be? Should we hear that and hear America's Babylon so sh- that we should not try to change it into Zion? Like what's, and so I think some people might hear that and say, oh, now I don't engage on a political level or now I pull away. Maybe the idea then is to, is to be fundamentalist, is to cloister ourselves and all sort of get into our huddles and try to yeah, not... You can, you can definitely hear that and sort of hear a uh, a removal of culture idea yeah. or the condemning culture idea that yeah. we talked about on the last podcast in, yeah. in light of Take Heart. But I I think we have examples for us in scripture. That's I great. was already you know talking a little bit about that in Tim Keller's book, uh, The Gospel in Life. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. Yep. He, he talks a lot about this too. You know, he's using, it's funny, he's already onto this idea that we're living in exile and he's pushing us to like, no, that doesn't mean that you remove yourself from culture. It means that like you are called, you know, to seek the welfare of the city. And you see like Daniel's a great example of this, right? It's like he rises to political power yeah. in, uh, you know, in Babylon and he, but he remains faithful at the same time. So there's got to be some way that you seek the good of the culture. You again, you it goes back to you try to be a picture of God's kingdom in, in whatever kingdom you're in. And for us, that's the you know the kingdom of America, but in a way that you can somehow remain faithful to your identity as a Christian. So it's a it's a type of tension that you're always living in, but you can't just remove one of those. You know, you, you can't just remove yourself from living in the culture. I mean, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, that idea. But we can't start to look like the world. And that's the, that's the, you know, the, the converting culture idea, but our consuming culture idea. Yeah. I, I think that's a good place to land. Um, I, you know, I, this conversation has been really informative for me and I hope it has for you too. And really at the end of the day, um, what we're saying is that, um, man, we don't have to be alone. And the implications of the gospel are not uh, sort of lonely implications that the gospel sort of transcends individuals and has a uh, restorative um, aim for the whole world. And that that's what we're moving towards. Yeah, and, it, and it challenges us. And, you know, this would be my, I guess, my sort of practical challenge for anyone listening is yeah. like to think about if your allegiance is supposed to be to the kingdom of, the kingdom of God, think about like, where is it? Where's your allegiance ultimately to something else? That's Whether right. that be country, you know, political party, 
family, job, the list goes on, yeah. right? Like, and so there's something really specific to take away from this too, right? Yeah. 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 I think the takeaway is to ask our questions, what's ruling and reigning in our hearts. And if it's not God, uh, then we have some serious work to do, right? And we all do. We all have yeah, serious work absolutely. to do. Um, so that's, those are great closing thoughts. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find it on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Rourke and edited and mixed by the mighty Christopher Starrett. Our next episode will focus on racial injustice and what this issue means for the church today. See you next time. God bless you.